0: The book caused a sensation when it was first released. Its effect upon the church was contagious. Hundreds of ministers and congregations, dozens of seminaries and Bible schools imbibed its methods, worshipped its pages. In a rush to be up to date, relevant to the climate of the country Progressive as the culture, the church adopted the thesis of the book and was reborn through its methods. How wonderfully simple was the message of the book. Jesus was a success. Yes, Jesus was a success, and the key to his success was his ability to transform 12 ragtag peasants into the greatest marketing force the world has ever seen. And the method Jesus used, salesmanship. The message of the Bible is a commodity. It is a consumer good. Like any commodity, word must go out about its availability. Commodity availability is broadcast by advertisement. So the church must aggressively advertise like any good business. Jesus was a success. He taught his disciples the keys to advertising, salesmanship, and marketing. That's how they turned the world upside down. Jesus was an organizational man with a Madison Avenue skill. He recruited, trained, and dispatched his 12-man workforce with the keys to success. Befriend people, promote efficiency, identify and address felt needs with your product. The result, the business of religion became America's business. A spin off from this best selling businessman's Jesus with his 12 corporate executives was another book a novel about a successful modern preacher. The preacher was an evangelist who built himself as a salesman of salvation, arguing that the devil should not have all the fun. The evangelist organized churches to put the bazaars back into religion. Activity was the key. Busyness, 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 like a narcotic. To keep the crowds moving was to keep them from thinking, from reflecting. Activity, activity, activity keep the folks mesmerized by peppy messages, never call it a sermon, the well-orchestrated presentation of worship, everything precisely on cue, gospel music, contemporary, of course, to create the atmosphere. All of this was funneled into organizational control, stimulus response, Pavlovian worship, the opiate of the masses. The hero of the best-selling novel about the successful modern preacher was a skilled manipulator. manipulator. Skilled yet hollow manipulator. As a spin-off from the best-selling book and the best-selling novel, a journal was launched in order to describe the latest in modern techniques for the contemporary church. Articles focused on building the successful Sunday school. Campaigns for building expansion, debt reduction schemes, effective neighborhood outreach through church gymnasiums and sports leagues, church bookstores and thrift centers, church parish house activities. The journal's major thesis, reorganize the church like American business. The system which keeps America moving can keep your church moving if you are forward-looking, flexible, willing to take risks, and take charge. As a spin-off from the best-selling book, the novel and the popular journal, theological seminaries revamped their practical theology departments to offer courses in church administration. The successful church is the well-administered church with a staff of secretaries, business managers, and financial officers. The skillful pastor is gifted in organization. He may even have an MBA, all to the better. The skillful pastor is particularly good at deputation and supervision. Seminary courses offered classes on organizing the pastor's office drawing upon the best modern techniques of executive leadership, salesmanship, personal charisma, how to dress for success, and most important, the art of the successful financial campaign. I have been describing a model for ministry which sounds like the modern church growth movement. In fact, the best selling book was Bruce Barton's The Man Nobody Knows, published in 1925. Barton crafted a Jesus who was a Wall Street Madison Avenue entrepreneur. That book was hotter than Old Faithful. The novel was written by Sinclair Lewis, his brilliantly scathing Elmer Gantry, released in 1927. This is a tale of a hypocritical evangelist pastor whose businessman's approach to Christianity revolted Lewis himself. He regarded it as prime-time chicanery. But Lewis was portraying the image of the salesman pastor of the Roaring Twenties. He even interviewed hundreds of them as the model for his portrait, Elmer Gantry. Yes, he did. The journal was called Church Management, launched in 1923 to keep the modern progressive pastor abreast of the latest management techniques adaptable by the church. And the theological seminaries, from Chicago Divinity School to Union Seminary in New York to San Anselmo, practical theology courses were rewritten in the 1920s to accommodate the emerging business climate of the progressive contemporary church. Mainline churches have already been down this road of adapting the church to the prevailing business culture. Why? Why do contemporary evangelical and reformed churches act as if there is something new under the sun? For further study of this Roaring Twenties phenomena, I refer you to Rolf London's Business and Religion in the American 1920s. We move from Bruce Barton's Madison Avenue Jesus to Almer Gantry's con artist evangelist pastor to church management's latest and greatest for making the church more businesslike to seminary courses taken from the prevailing culture. We move from these to John 10. We are not in the same atmosphere. We are not in the same atmosphere. I am bonus pastor. I am the good shepherd, John 10, 11. The Latin word pastor does not mean businessman. It means shepherd. The model for the biblical pastor, the biblical under-shepherd, is the eschatological pastor, the eschatological shepherd of the sheep. And that model brings us to John 10. We know the context of this discourse, this Good shepherd discourse by our Lord. One of his lambs has been cast out, and the shepherd of the sheep finds him. John chapter 9 narrates Jesus' healing of the man born blind, the former blind man's interrogation and excommunication from the temple, Jesus' discovery of the man, and Jesus' full discovery of himself to the man. The Good Shepherd discourse looks back, back to the miraculous healing of the man born blind, back to the blindness of hireling Pharisees who were born with eyes to see, ostensibly. If we read of thieves and robbers, strangers and hirelings, wolves, we are supposed to understand these retrospectively. We know the context of this discourse, this good shepherd discourse by our Lord. One of His lambs is about to sicken and die. And the shepherd of the sheep goes to Him, groans within deeply for Him, weeps in front of His grave. John chapter 11 narrates Jesus' stupendous Resurrection of Lazarus, the subsequent interrogation by the chief priests and Pharisees, the plot to destroy the shepherd and scatter the sheep. The good shepherd discourse looks forward, forward to the miraculous resurrection of Lazarus, forward to the prophetic plotting of Caiaphas and the council of the Jews, forward to death for the one who brings the resurrection, and the life. If we read of thieves and robbers, strangers and hirelings, wolves, we are supposed to understand these prospectively. Consider John 10.39 with John 11.53. Our shepherd stands between two of his lambs. Our shepherd and his lambs Stand between light and life and darkness and death. Our shepherd with his lambs stands antithetically. They stand over against alien pastors and flocks, an alien pastorate and an alien sheepfold. Our shepherd and his lambs are positioned antithetically. The good shepherd stands over against the bad shepherds. The sheep of the shepherd hear his voice. They stand over against those who do not believe, those who are not of his sheep. If the light of the world is shining upon the lambs who have dwelt in darkness if the resurrection and the life is enlivening lambs who have been entombed in cursed darkness, then it is because this shepherd, this pastor, has brought something very different to the flock of God. When was there a shepherd of Israel who opened the eyes of the blind? Yes, this good shepherd does. Isaiah had said it, this one does it. When was there a shepherd in Israel who raised the dead? Yet this good shepherd does. Ezekiel had foretold it. This one does it. What was so difficult? What was so difficult for the erstwhile shepherds of Israel in Jesus' day to see, to understand? These pastors entrusted with the law and the prophets. These pastors assigned the oracles of God. These pastors looking, searching for the shepherd like unto Moses, the pastor like David, the one raised up to heaven like Elijah. How is it that Moses and David's and Elijah's Lord is alien, yea, antithetical to them? How could they miss it, these shepherd pastors of Israel? How could they miss the power and the person before their very eyes? The answer is that they had a radically different view of the pastorate. They had a radically different view of the pastorate. They they viewed their turf of law, legalism, litigation as angelic. Jesus was of the devil. They viewed their role in cult, calendar, custom as self-authenticating. Jesus was a blasphemer. They viewed their position of privilege, prestige, prominence as public piety. Jesus was a threat. The pastorate of the false shepherds of Israel was an administration of law, a law which required sacrifice, not mercy. The pastorate of the false shepherds of Israel was an administration of cult, the cult of the temple a cult which necessitated the absolutization of Jerusalem. The pastorate of the false shepherds of Israel was an administration of political and social self-definition, a self-definition which required pious subservience to the establishment. But in front of them was a different shepherd, a different pastorate, not a shepherd from the past, but a shepherd from heaven, Not a pastorate from the past, but a pastorate from heaven. In front of them was a good shepherd who showed the mercy of the law, the mercy of heaven, by healing the lame and the blind on the Sabbath day. In front of them was a good shepherd who declared that he was the temple of God, the heavenly God-man meeting place, that He was the temple of God in their midst, even pursuing His lambs cast out of the temple in Jerusalem, that He might gather them to Himself in the Jerusalem above. In front of them was the Good Shepherd who declared that this was the self-definition of power. He would die for His sheep. He would lay down His life denying his power in order to transform the power and prestige of crucifixion, humiliation, and shame. He would make that scandal his glory. We are faced here in John 10 with two very different conceptions of the pastorate. One blindly anchored in self, self self-promotion, the prestige of the poster boy approach to ministry. The pastor is guru, as a rancher, as a sheep herder. The other selflessly, selflessly anchored in love, love of the father, love of the sheep. Not narcissistic self-love, eudaimonistic love for the lambs given by the father. We are faced here in John 10 with two very different conceptions of the pastorate. One stubbornly vested in expediency and pragmatism. The sheep are a means to an end, namely the enrichment and advancement of me, the pastor. And the other devoted to the sheep as the precious lambs of God, not to be exploited, not to be used as career stepping stones to bigger and better pulpits to megachurches, not to be used but to be served, to suffer for them, to weep for them, and even if need be, to die for them. I believe the basic literary pattern in John 10 is an unfolding contrastive or oppositional elaboration between the true and false shepherds. The redemptive historical imagery of the shepherds of Israel makes this chapter a further enlargement upon the displacement-replacement motif in John's Gospel. Christ Jesus, the truly good shepherd of the Israel of God, has been incarnate in order to displace and replace the false shepherds of the sheep. Prophetic projections of one who would feed his flock like a shepherd. Isaiah 40:11. Shepherd God's flock in the strength of the Lord. Micah 5:4. Be a shepherd after God's own heart. Jeremiah 3:15. These are the conscious contexts for Christ's good shepherd metaphor. As the canonical prophets lamented the false prophets of Israel. Jeremiah 23:1-4. Ezekiel 34, 2 to 24. Zechariah 11:4 to 17. So Jesus declares that his incarnation is to displace and replace these hirelings, these thieves, these robbers once and for all. Jesus is the eschatological shepherd of the sheep. He is not a hireling. He is not a thief. He is not a robber. He is not a coward. He possesses the sheep as his own. He preserves the sheep because he loves them. He protects the sheep from every enemy who threatens them. No one, no one is able to snatch them out of this shepherd's hand. No one is able to snatch them out of the shepherd's father's hand. No one. The contrastive or antithetical elaboration between the true shepherd and the anti-shepherd, the true pastor and the anti-pastor flows from two units in this chapter <coughs> inaugurated by Amen, Amen, Truly, Truly. The two sections of 10, 1 to 18 are demarcated with verily, verily. Follow as I draw out the antithetical pattern. Truly, truly, he who does not enter by the door, verse 1. Antithetical, he who does enter by the door, verse 2. The sheep hear his voice, verse 3. The sheep follow him because they know his voice, verse 4. Antithetical, they will not follow a stranger because they do not know his voice, verse 5. Truly, truly, again, I am the door of the sheep, verse 7. Antithetical, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them, verse 8. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved, verse 9. And now verse 10, this marvelous balanced stanza. It stands as a balanced antithesis between the antithetical stanzas which go before it and come after it. The thief comes to steal, kill, destroy. I am come that they may have life and have it abundantly, verse 10. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd and lay down my life for the sheep. Antithetical, the hireling flees and the wolf snatches the sheep because he won't lay down his life for the sheep. The hireling is not concerned about the sheep, verse 13. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and know my own. You have a carefully crafted series of antithetical statements in which Jesus positions himself over against the false shepherds of Israel. Jesus is the antithesis of the false shepherd pastors. What characterizes these anti pastors is their mercenary attitude of fleecing the sheep and leaving them to the enemy. As one very successful pastor once said, What are the sheep if they are not for fleecing? And that's why he was successful. The verses subsequent to the Good Shepherd Inclusio in verse 14 use negation in a different manner. Not antithetical, but redemptive historical. The sheep not of this fold. Notice the phrase in verse 16. Those sheep are Gentile lambs, destined for the same mystical union as the election according to the remnant of grace from the flock of Israel. The antithesis between laying down his life And taking up his life again is the eschatological fruition of vicarious death and vindicatory resurrection. This crucifixion-resurrection antithesis actualizes the participation of the shepherds' lambs united with him. They have died and they have been raised again in him. Hence, verses 16 to 18 underscore a contrast which unites the sheep to the shepherd. He lays down his life for them. Their life is forfeit in his death. He takes up his life again for them. Their life is raised up together in his resurrection. The union, notice verse 16, one flock, one shepherd. The union is the mystical union of the death and resurrection of the eschatological pastor. And yet, the union undergirding this redemptive historical identification is more profound, more poignant, more transcendent than the participation in the death and resurrection of the shepherd of the sheep. Verses 22 to 30 are nothing less than an ontological revelation of a mystical union, a mystical union which surpasses human knowledge. I and the Father are one, verse 30, one essence, one substance, one usia. Now the antithesis becomes anchored in the ontological. The ontological union between the Father and the Son. No one shall snatch them out of My hand. No one shall snatch them out of the Father's hand. Verses 28 and 21, 29. This union between shepherd and sheep is brought into relation with the union between the first and second person of the Godhead. This union between the shepherd and the sheep is brought into relation with the union between the first and second person of the Godhead. Verse 28, eternal life is the life of the ontological union existing between the Father and the Son. That life, eternal life, is given, is given to the sheep of Christ. The Son of God incarnates that life in order to draw those in the arena of His incarnation into union with that life. The ontological life is given to the creature so as to fit the creature for life in the ontological arena. The ontological life, eternal life, is given to the creature so as to fit the creature, make the creature suitable for life in an ontological arena. There's no antithesis between the Creator and creature here being destroyed. None whatsoever. Don't accuse me of destroying the ontological trinity. I'm not doing anything of the kind. The ontological trinity share the life of their arena appropriate to the state of a creature to possess that life. It doesn't turn the creature into God. It allows the creature to share the life of God by a participative mystical union. There is no attack on ontological trinity in that statement. Do not misquote me. I'm tired of it. Now this climactic ontological declaration in verse 30, is clearly perceived by the ear witness Jews. They heard it clearly. They didn't misrepresent it. You make yourself God, verse 33. Unlike liberal fundamentalists, the contemporary Jews understand Jesus' claim to ontic deity all too well. It is not a mere doctrinal abstraction, a mere proof text for the ontological trinity. Christ's claim to ontological union with the Father is incarnational. It is redemptive historical. Because He is one with the Father, He has become man to bring you into union with the Father. Because He is one with the Father... He has become man to bring you into union with His death and resurrection. Athanasius said nothing more. Sixteen centuries ago. This is what it means to be a sheep of the Good Shepherd. A lamb of the Lamb of God. It means to be united with the heavenly pastor through death and resurrection of the Son of God. Of the Father. This whole chapter, filled with elaborate metaphor, is a chapter of powerful, albeit sweet, precious union with God the Father and God the Son. We have reached a dimension in the theology of the Gospel of John which is pressing upon the mystery of God Himself. And you, you who are the sheep. Of the Good Shepherd are being folded down into that surpassing mystery. Your union with God makes Christ a doorway to eternal life for you. Your union with God makes Christ's voice sweet to you. Your union with God makes you follow where His voice leads, including all of His commandments, all of them. Your union with God means you have found salvation. Your union with God means He pastures, He leads, He nourishes you. Your union with God means your life is hidden in the death and resurrection of the Son. Your precious union with God means He knows you. He knows you. And you, you know Him. Your union with God means you are enfolded in the hand of the Son, and folded around the hand of the Son, folded around you, is the hand of the Father. There is no power on heaven or earth or hell strong enough to take you out of that double eternal security. Your ecstatic union with God means he will never let you go he will never let you go from that union with him he has joined you unto himself he will never put that union asunder he will never no never divorce you The anti pastor is a mercenary, a manipulator, a sheepherder, an ecclesiastical CEO, a self server. He will not forfeit his life, he's too busy carving out his own empire. Losing his life is for losers those who have forgotten that the ministry is for survivors. Skilled politicians who have learned how to manage the sheep. The anti-pastor is an ecclesiastical guru, shrewdly calculating the position of the spotlight with himself in the center, of course. He is a skilled actor. He can weep on cue. He can confess his sins to the choir. He can declare that a new sense of spirituality has recently overwhelmed him and he's had a kind of fresh birth. And so his ministry starts on a whole new track. It's a game. It's a crass game. The anti-pastor is the master of the con. He's the master of the con. He gains sympathy by every careful, calculated move. He's a master of brokering power. He doesn't have a hair out of place. Not one. He's coiffed every week. How he basks in the adulation of 75. Oh, 100, 400, now 1,200 people listening to him, listening to his opinions week after week, my own captive audience. Let Christ increase? Why, sure, as long as you don't expect me to lay down my life, surrender my salary, give up my position, turn over my status, give up myself... The anti-pastor is the leader of the first church of feel-good. The builder of the IBM Congregation of America. I build myself Congregation of America. He's the CEO of an ecclesiastical phenomena which looks more like a successful American corporation than the church. And boy, is he smooth. Oh, is he smooth. but how alien to John chapter 10 is he and all he stands for and how he earns the contempt of the Sinclair Lewises and the H.L. Menkins and the others, the other pagans who can see right through him. And you wonder why evangelical and reformed Christianity stinks in the nostrils of the general American public. because the American public can tell a game when they see it. How foreign to this anti-pastor is dying, giving, setting free, loving. No, he doesn't understand how to love. He understands how to take but he doesn't understand how to love. The eschatological pastor gives. He gives nothing less than his entire self, body and blood, for his sheep. The eschatological pastor dies, dies to himself for the sake of his sheep. Yes, Jesus had to die to himself to make you more important than himself. That's how important his lambs were to him, that he gave up himself. Yes, eschatological pastor leads. Yes, he leads his flock by the streams of living water where they feed upon the bread of heaven. The eschatological pastor frees. He frees his flock. He frees his flock from the terror of the enemy, from the terror of ecclesiastical tyrants, from the terror of a hostile culture. The eschatological pastor loves, yea, he loves his flock his tears shed in private prayer for his dear lambs his heart yearning to bring his sheep fully formed as a sweet smelling offering unto god his affections his affections are poured out on each little lamb whom he loves for christ's sake for Christ's sake. Some of you may be seeking a model for ministry. It is here in John chapter 10. It is here in the eschatological pastor. It is here in the one who is the antithesis of the wheelers and dealers, the cons and the sharks, the manipulators and the tyrants who occupy the modern evangelical and reformed pulpit. The good shepherd invites you into the sweet union of his own death, selfless, sacrificial, loving, gentle, tender. Only in that union will you ever become an under-shepherd of the great shepherd of the sheep, Only when your motives and your heart are conformed to John 10 will you ever begin to be a pastor. It is here for the sheep and the erstwhile shepherds. It is here for mimesis. I'll take any questions that you may have. Uh, We have covered a lot of ground, but I'll be glad to back up if you have any comments or matters that you would like clarified. David? The question is, uh, since the modern evangelical movement is uh, suggesting that every member is a co-pastor, what's the motivation for it? Is it an attempt to to uh, hide uh, the uh, ministry uh, from the sheep? Uh, I think rather it's the uh, it's the tyranny of the ultimate democratic principle. It's the attempt to reduce everyone to the same level in theory. In theory, however, even in those churches where it's happening, the uh, the the authoritarian control tends to get ratcheted up consequently even though the dignity may be given that you know, you're know you all regarded as equally co-pastors with one another nonetheless you know, there, there's, a, uh, there's, a, there's an emperor on the throne the reductionism in uh, evangelical and even reformed Christianity to get everybody down on the same level uh, this is the basic error in my opinion of the two office view in the reform movement uh, it's an attempt to reduce the privileges of the ordained pastoral ministry uh, to the and give the ruling elder uh, who is not a pastor those very same gifts. I think it's dangerous, and I don't think it's biblical. Uh, but it's this this other outcome of it is an extension of that, in my opinion. Other questions or comments? You're allowed to disagree if you wish. Or... All right, Uh, uh, we continue to make time, and uh, next week we'll try to do 11 and 12, uh, potentially chapter 13, uh, as we come to the spring break. Uh, Then we have the uh, farewell discourses of Christ, and then the trial of Jesus, which is quite intricate in John's Gospel. And so uh, I'm hoping as we move quickly, we uh, allow enough time to treat adequately That profound uh, trial and execution narrative in uh, John 18 and 19. I have a question. I don't know to whom it should be addressed, but in uh, the census of human population throughout history, whatever it might be, say 10 billion, I don't know. In terms of population, Uh, how was... was, was Boy, I have no idea, David. Uh, That's a question you'd have to put to a guy named David Barrett, who has an encyclopedia of world Christianity and keeps statistics on world Christian groups. In fact, if my recollection is correct, he even has a kind of timeline that you're looking at, which has population... Along with the events in history, Christian history. So I'm sorry that uh, I, I I can't. Yeah, his name's David Barrett, B-A-R-R-E-T-T. Encyclopedia of World Christianity. It may even be available in uh, one of the uh, Linwood or Edmonds libraries or something like that. It's a it's a fairly famous reference book that a lot of public libraries would have.